do better. Welcome to Do Better Podcast, a digital content hub from Asade, built for minds interested in doing better. Welcome to the Asade Innovation Podcast. We aim to bring you the best of free of what you don't know yet on innovation, AI, and smart cities. The following is a conversation with Professor Gregory LeBlanc, Professor at UC Berkeley, and many other universities such as Stanford. Uh, Gregory has been lecturer on data science, analytics, innovation, particularly digital innovation. Gregory is also the host of a very popular, really interesting podcast called Unsiloed. It's a podcast that inspires me and where I found gems that I didn't find anywhere else. So I encourage you to follow Unsiloed and give it an opportunity for you. Welcome, Gregory. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Our first question is, uh, you are one of the best professors that I know in executive education and you have been teaching all over the world uh, for decades. Uh, top universities, HX around the world, uh, all this time, uh, what changed in executive education? What did you take on that? Well, there's a lot of different um trends that we can we can look at i think executive education um for many people in the past was kind of like a check the box exercise right it was sort of hey i need to step out of the office for a little bit of time and you know maybe get up to speed on a bunch of things and i think it was it was really it wasn't really so much the content of what people were learning as much as it was um stepping back and removing yourself uh, from the day to day, you know, which is, of course, is, is, is extremely important. Um, but now, right, um, we've come to appreciate that if you're not engaged in continuous learning, right, if you're not updating your software, right, on, on a continuous basis, then you're, you're really going to be ill-suited, ill-prepared for, you know, the, the world in which you're, you're doing business and the world in which you're operating, so just like if you have uh, software on your phone and you go for, you know, a couple of years without updating it, it's it's probably not going to work, you know, very well on on your new device and it's it's going to be uh, you know, clunky and it's going to be slow and it's it's not going to be um, you know, super uh uh collaborative with the other, you know, applications you have on your phone. So so I think we've we've moved to a world where we appreciate the importance of of continuous learning. And that means that the, the education that people are getting has to be um, justified. You know, you have to find some kind of um, tangible benefit from, from what it is that you're getting uh, from these, these programs. So that's sort of content wise. Then in terms of delivery, right. You know, we've seen an explosion of different uh, delivery methods and delivery techniques, right. We've gone from, everyone comes to a university and sits down in the classroom to one where we are um, out in the field, right? Meeting people, engaging in these, uh, you know, uh, tours and, 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 you know, junkets, right? Uh, which are, which are um, a little bit more engaging. And then of course we now have, you know, online and online comes in a lot of different forms, right? Um, both uh, kind of 
uh, asynchronous and, and synchronous. We've got cohort based. We've got, you know, kind of interaction uh, based um, learning. So the, the, the palette has expanded. Uh, and so as a consumer of executive education, I think that, you know, it's much more confusing. You, you've got a lot more options uh, and, um, you know, people are struggling to figure out exactly how they're going to, um, you know, imp how they're going to continue their education. I think one other trend that I'll mention is that, um, you know, a lot of uh, training used to be sponsored by the corporation, right? So you would, General Electric was famous for having this, this massive educational, internal educational institution up at Crotonville, you know, with the rapid turnover, you know, here in Silicon Valley, the average employee lasts about 14 months. Um, you know, companies, they have to be very careful about the investments that they make in people because the, the people are going to be, um, you know, churning so quickly. So it's really more up to the employee to, to make these investments and take control of their, their career path and their, and their career journey. So those, those are some initial thoughts, but of course there's, there's lots of other stuff going on. In terms of delivery, you have been talking and let's go a little bit more in this part of delivery. Uh, for many years, we use cases. And in cases, we use the imagination of our students to put themselves into a scenario where they have to solve. Then MOOCs arrive, and with MOOCs, content were way more richer. You have movies, you have uh, uh, the bullet points that we had in the beginning transformed into uh, almost a, a, a Hollywood scenario, a Hollywood PowerPoints and so on. Then Sparks, a small, uh, a small private online courses come to universities. Now we are talking about the metaverse. How do you see this evolution to, of uh, contents and the richness of contents that we have? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I like to say when justifying the case method that the best way to learn something is to do something, right? You know, you want to learn to drive, you, you drive a car. You want to learn to swim, you know, you got to be in the pool. And we're not quite there to the point where, you know, a business school student is going to be handed the keys to a company and be like, here, why don't you go run General Motors for a week or so? <laughs> I think we'd need a much bigger endowment to, um, you know, provide that type of education. So, so we do need to come up with um, high quality kind of simulations. And, and this can come in a, in a couple forms, right? One is, of course, the, the case method. Others are in the form of, you know, simulations right? In games, right? And this is sort of how we train pilots, right? We put pilots in a simulator and then we run them through different, um, uh, you know, crash scenarios and, and so forth. And of course, you know, VR, AR is now um, becoming a, a something that can be used for those sorts of, of experiences. I think it's a little bit less important that you have that kind of visceral um, environment for kind of more managerial decisions, right? Certainly for more, you know, physical experiences, you want that. So when you're trying to replicate the reality, I find that running students through exercises where they actually have to build businesses, right? Build actual businesses, right? Build actual prototypes, um, you know, launch actual uh, initiatives. Um, that's like the best possible way to get them to experience what it's like. Um, so, you know, we 
at Berkeley and Stanford, we have these uh, kind of lean startup uh, kind of mini uh, accelerator incubator type experiences. Um, and again, there that it's not so much the the technology that is the important thing as much as it is the the you know the environment and, and the coaching and the the feedback that they get. Now, now technologically, we're still at the stage where you know we haven't quite figured out the true potentiality of new simulation type environments. I do think that um, in terms of international collaboration and remote collaboration, that has exploded, right? That has exploded. Um, and uh, the ability for, for, for students to, to collaborate using anything as basic as a, as a Zoom, all the way up to something that's a little bit you know more sophisticated, um, that's taking over both in education and in work. In universities, there is a fight for relevance. Uh, universities want to stay relevant and staying relevant in, in this world of very competitive business school. It's more difficult than ever. Uh, what do universities have to change to keep being relevant? And, and how is the university of the future? How will it look like? What do you think of that? That's a great question. Um, because I don't think we want to lose the notion of a university as a uh, place that's set apart to some degree from the world that it studies, right? We do need to have, um, you know, a place where people can step outside of their daily lives. We, we do need a, a place that supports uh, disinterested research, right? We do need a place that um, supports primary research without any direct commercial application. So, so that, that part has to be protected. But on the other side, right, if we, if we want um, the business schools in particular, engineering schools, professional schools, if we want these schools to, to maintain their, their relevance, then they have to change as quickly on the inside as the world is changing on the outside, right? We, when we talk about things like agility, we talk about things like, you know, modularity, all those principles that we teach in our digital transformation classes, they have to flow back to the universities, right? And if the universities have internal organizational structures that are operating on 20-year cycles, when the world is operating on a six-month cycle, then there's going to be a, a delay and a gap, and people are going to go elsewhere to, to, to get this, this knowledge. So I do think that universities have to implement kind of quicker decision-making, um, you know, they have to uh, um, have a more fluid kind of uh, instructional um, base, right? We need to, um, we can't have like an eight-year kind of PhD cycle uh, and where people are, you know, working on their publications and, and, and then, you know, retire into, you know, teaching, so to speak. I mean, we, we do need to accelerate the pace of, of change and we do need to uh, listen to our customers, now, I know a lot of people get a little nervous when we use the term customers, and I'm, I'm being very careful here. Um, you know, we have uh, students as customers. We have recruiters as customers. We have companies uh, that are interested in the research output as our, our customers. And so, you know, while it might not make sense to think of students always as customers in the, in, in, in the sense that, you know, forgets about our professional responsibility, you know, doctors, lawyers, journalists all have to 
think very carefully about their relationship with their customers. I, I do think that the universities have to learn to move uh, more quickly, be more responsive, and um, you know, listen more carefully to their stakeholders and, and constituents in the uh, external world. One of the ideas in this direction that is getting traction is the idea of the university as a platform, where mm -hmm. the role of academics will be less, and then it will be an empty mm -hmm. uh, space for companies, uh, big tech, the, the big tech mm -hmm. industry, for um, uh, many other people that we can put courses and we can waive uh, mm -hmm. online courses and we can and uh, the university will become a place where you certify all these contents some mm -hmm. of it but a minority of it created by research academics and most of it created by other types of people some academics some not academics uh, what is your take on that yeah, I mean, some people say platforms are taking over the world, right, as, as a business model. Um, I mean, if you think about what the universities, uh, from a teaching perspective, were all about in the past, they were, of course, providing content, but more importantly, they were providing a curated um, cohort, right, a curated environment where people could uh, establish trust with one another and, uh, you know, build up relationships with one another, okay? And, you know, of course, that those those different functions uh, require different kind of institutional and organizational forms. Um, from the content provision side of things, it, it doesn't really make any sense to be, say, completely vertically integrated. I mean, we don't at Berkeley only teach insights that were developed at Berkeley, right? I mean, you know, if if Einstein was at Princeton when he came up with theory of relativity, actually, I think he was in Switzerland, we don't say, well, we're not teaching that because that wasn't built at Berkeley, right? I mean, that's that's absurd. Of course, we're going to incorporate insights and ideas from 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 anywhere. And if that's the case, then then why shouldn't we be also willing to incorporate, right, instructional ideas and so forth. I mean, we use textbooks that are published by, um, you know, private publishers, uh, written by authors without affiliations. So at the end of the day, we've always been a platform, but we've maintained certain elements as um, entirely kind of internally developed, in, in particular, the, the faculty side of things. So, so I do see um, universities becoming more platform-like, they've always been platform-like, but they have to be a little bit more platform-like simply because the breadth of knowledge, the sources of knowledge, and uh, the speed of, of knowledge change are all uh, expanding. So I, I think that, you know, Harvard's doing interesting things, right, with HBX, where they have sort of a very highly curated um, instructional environment for people who are willing to pay a premium price to be part of, you know, the MBA program, let's say. But then you have a much kind of cheaper version of something similar, which is, again, mostly internally developed, uh, which we call HBX. Now, if they become more of like a platform, then what they'll do is they'll essentially soak it, soak up and, and, you know, have an app store, right, that allows you to access content, but it'll be curated app store. Right. So it won't be open platform. Any old idiot who wants to, you know, create content can push it through the Harvard, you know, pipeline. No, it has to be curated 
the branding is all about the curation. It's all about the selection and the refinement and the endorsement. So when you look at Amazon creating something like Machine Learning University, right? If Amazon can come up with the best instructional content related to machine learning, then I don't see why, say, you know, Berkeley would need to develop its own curriculum around this if they're doing it perfectly fine. But Berkeley has people who could examine it and say, hey, you know, this this works well with what we are trying to do. So we're going to kind of prove it and 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 allow people to to access this this content, maybe with an additional integration layer. Um, so so that's sort of how I, I think about it. And And if that's true, then we will see a, I think, uh, a reshuffling of the roles. Uh, we will see a couple of very, very prestigious universities um, expand their brands and and become you know much, much, much more substantial. So instead of a Harvard graduating you know ten thousand people a year, I mean they could graduate you know they could basically run a couple million people through it, different 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 levels and different degrees. Um, and then the the kind of lesser institutions located around the world would would be kind of um, channel partners, right, for that content. So we came up with this idea a couple of years back, which was called Berkeley Inside. And, you know, we never really kind of pursued it, again, because of organizational frictions. But the idea of, say, Berkeley Inside would mean that you could have a university in, uh, you know, Mozambique or in, you know, Cambodia or whatever – that was essentially an outpost where people could obtain, um, you know, uh, Berkeley style education. Um, and then you'd have a careful division of, you know, what can be done virtually, what is best done in person, what can be done, um, you know, through scale, what, what, what has to be done at, at um, small scale. Right. So, you know, some stuff is better delivered at scale. Some is not. Some is better in person. Some is not. And and you know, if we start from first principles and say, well, what works, and then follow that, rather than, you know, what have we been doing, <laughs> and and since the 13th century, and and uh, and you know, University of Bologna, and uh, and and repeating rinse washing and repeating that methodology, uh, I, I think that you know, education can um, can blossom and and really. Uh, you know, live up to the importance that it really deserves in our lives. Yeah, going into this direction, in universities, basically we try to do three things. Uh, one is content. We provide content. And this is probably diminishing because content is everywhere. You can have high-quality content in the Internet <clears throat> much better many times than the one that we provide at the universities. We have flipped classrooms and so on. And the second one, particularly in executive education, is networking. Uh, networking has always been so, mm -hmm. so important between students, scholars and students and so on. And the third part is this hands-on experience that sometimes mm -hmm. go with discussions, sometimes with simulations, sometimes with uh, small experiments, um, in, in any of these things. How do you see in this future of uh, executive education these three elements of content, networking and uh, hands-on experience? How is this going to be developed? Well, I, I want to push back a little bit on the content piece because, you know, we, we, we think that content is becoming commodified and uh, because of, you know, the development of MOOCs and so forth. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit hesitant to say that. Um, you know, I just, 
uh, last night I went to a concert by uh, your uh, countryman, uh, Jordi Saval, right? <laughs> uh, and I went to see him in person and I paid a good amount of money to go see him in person. Now you might think, well, why would I do that, right? I mean, I've got like, you know, 50 of his CDs lying around somewhere and I've, you know, I can stream this stuff whenever I want. Like, why would I go and pay good money to see this this guy in, in, in person, right? Um, and, and so I, I do think that, just because we have this massive amount of content that we can access through streaming doesn't mean that we're not going to still desire, right. A, 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 a more hands-on experience. Right. So, so even on the content side, I think that, but we'll see sort of a, a stretching or a stratification. Now, look, the number of people who can play the the cello or the viol in the U in the world today is probably far fewer on a per capita basis than it was a couple hundred years ago. So we will see kind of, um, you know, the winner take more winner take all, um, you know, uh, concentration of, of content providers. Um, but we will, we will see some, 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 some division in that way. So, so that, so I do think we'll, we'll still have a reason for in-person instruction, even, uh, apart from the kind of cohort construction and socialization that takes place. Cause I, I actually didn't chat with too many people at the concert, you know what I mean? <laughs> but when you add in the chat, you know, the, the ability to kind of hang out after the concert, before the concert, or, you know, interact with the, the performer, then it becomes even more important that you have uh, a, a, a small non-scalable experience. So, um, so, so again, in all three of these these domains, the industrial organization of of education is is going to have to is is going to have to change. Going into this change, into this direction of change, there has been a huge change in the role of the professors that we are. Uh, uh, the professors were focused on the delivery. The delivery was mm -hmm. the centerpiece of what we did for many years. But mm -hmm. now, since the MOOCs and all this content appears, we are focus a lot on content creation and content creation yeah. is being as important as the delivery many times because we are not there we just our content is delivered online and we are not there so there is no delivery to to is just our creation but how do you see that and what is the, the strain that puts on professors and on the university itself well it takes me back to that metaphor of the musician um but i could use another metaphor which is that of a of, of the doctor Right. Um, you know, professors are part of a guild, just like, you know, doctors are, are, are part of a guild and, and doctors and professors are very protective of their kind of status as, as guild members. Right. So, you know, doctors uh, have a belief that no one but a doctor should be able to do certain things. And, and that's crazy. Right. That's, that's nuts. Like this recent, you know, coronavirus crisis. It's like, oh, you know, if you feel sick, you got to go see a doctor. It's like, why? Why do you get? Why do you got to see a doctor? Right? I mean, if all you need is to, you know, suppose even if you need something that's really demanding, like a ventilator, right? Why can't you have a person who just does ventilators? Like that person doesn't need to know the Latin word for your, you know, leg tendons, right? In order to administer like you know ventilator stuff, right? So, so I think that um, we're going to see a kind of a a, a breakdown. Uh, in, in the barrier between kind of professors and and, and non-professors, right? Where 
you know, professor used to have to go through and get the PhD and then go through the tenure process and all that. And I think that's going to kind of break down to some degree. Um, and then when you, when you get rid of those things, then you, you realize that the, um, the content producer, you know, need not be the, the person that um, developed the concepts. Now, look, I think that we're all, we always are going to feel like the Nobel prize winner is, has more credibility. So we're going to, you know, obviously listen to them, pay attention to them a little more, but if that Nobel prize winner is not very compelling as a, as a speaker or a communicator, then, you know, we're going to, we're going to get frustrated after a while. And, and so, so I like to think that um, in the future, right. The, the, the person who you meet in the doctor's office, they may be more of like a, you know, they, they may have skills as, you know, empathic individuals. Right. And then the treatment plan is actually developed by an algorithm. Right. We'll see a kind of a division of labor between the diagnostics and the treatment plan, which could, might be, you know, done by software. And then the person who kind of coaches you through like, okay, now you got cancer. So here's what we do. Right. That could be someone who's, you know, like a, an actor. They, they don't need to have any knowledge of biochemistry or whatever to, to play that role. So, so I, I actually, you know, for me, I'm a little, I feel a little threatened by this. Like, I don't want some actor taking over my job, but, but maybe, you know, maybe that is uh, kind of where, you know, where we're headed. So, um, because at the end of the day, when it comes to, to content, um, you need to, you need to keep people engaged. You need to keep people uh, um, uh, excited. You need to keep their attention. Um, now, of course, I'm not one of these people who thinks that every single human being on the planet has a 30 second attention span and, 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 uh, and, and needs to be swiping and, and clicking and, and blipping and so forth. You know, I, I, there are plenty, the reason why I created the podcast is because I thought that there is a substantial number of people who are willing to actually spend an hour, an hour. Can you imagine? That's a really mm -hmm. long period of time, you know, listening to a, a conversation where we, we, we go in depth into a, a particular topic not for everybody. There are most, you know, there are plenty of people that just need that, you know, that, that click and the whiz bang and so forth. But, but I do think that there are people that are interested in that. And, um, and, and so, um, so we're going to see a proliferation of, of, of methods and techniques. And rather than having a one size fit all where you go and you sit in a classroom and you sit in a desk and you've got some little blackboard or whatever, why not have different approaches to everybody. And the constraint there used to be scale. Like you couldn't at a university offer 50 different versions of Calc 1 for different types of, you know, learning styles and attention spans. But now we can. There's no reason why we can't offer 50 different styles of, you know, learning calculus um, because, because we can scale this stuff now. So I don't pretend that my podcast is for everybody. My podcast is for a very, very small select group of people, but because I can throw it up on the internet and reach people all around the world, I don't need to collect, you know, a hundred person, hundred people in one room, in one time, in one place. Uh, I simply could uh, be impossible to do. I, I don't think I could find a hundred people in, in the city of Berkeley who would sit down and listen to <laughs> all this stuff right three times a week. So so, so, you know, we, we, we now have the ability to kind of mass customize um, the educational journeys, both in terms of content and in terms of delivery method. 
Uh, by the way, I love your podcast. <laughs> I find oh, it thanks. so interesting that I, I met so, so many interesting authors and, and so on. Uh, uh, one, one, one last question going into this direction. <clears throat> it's about economics. Uh, the economics are very important. The economics of universities are changing completely. And once you change the economics of the organization, you change the organization. That's, that's mm -hmm. part of the thing. So until now, the economics was pretty simple, was the one of a consultant or a craftsman. You have more students, you need more professors. Now, these with uh, MOOCs and SPOCs and so on has been broken. I mean, you can have an SPOC, you can have a MOOC, and you can have thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of students. Mm -hmm. And then the economics broke completely. With the metaverse, it's kind of the same. I mean, you need more money to start and create the content, but once the content is created, it's kind of the same type of economics that you have with online. You have lots of people. How do you think this is going to change uh, these universities of the future, and particularly this executive education of the future? Well, I, I, I always say, you know, if you're, not a, if you're not a platform, you're an app. Right, and I think that um, some universities are going to be platforms, and some are going to be apps. Like, some are going to be more focused on the content creation. Some are going to be more in the content kind of aggregation. Um, and of course, you know, the the best will be doing doing both. Um, I think when you when you sit down and you know you you get a degree from Harvard um, in the future, you will probably go through a a, a Dartmouth experience and you'll go through a Yale experience and you'll go through a Berkeley experience all the while pursuing your, your, your Harvard degree. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, the, the metaverse is not, I don't think of the metaverse as a, as a distinct technology. I think of it as sort of part of a portfolio of, of, of technologies that facilitates, uh, learning. Um, and, uh, and, 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 you know, when I was, it was about 10, 11 years ago when I created the first online course for, for UC Berkeley. And at the time, the debate was bricks and mortar versus online. That was it. It was like, these were the two options. These were two discrete bundles, non-overlapping bundles. And it was like, do we really want to go all in on an online degree? And, you know, my position always was that these are not two distinct bundles, that there are, there's a continuum there are a bunch of different dimensions. You can have, you know, remote instructors for bricks and mortar classrooms. You can have, right, um, bricks and mortar instructors for remote students, right? You know, you can have pre-recorded and uh, live. You can have, I mean, there's just a palette of, of options available. And while it might make sense to have, you know, a couple certain, you know, clusters of features, the if you work from first principles then then you can um you know find the the combination of features that, that works best so the the economics of, of the university um will change i think that universities are going to have to think of themselves to some degree as media companies i remember talking to my, my former dean about this like you know are we like you know we're we're like media companies right <laughs> delivering content the other thing is we have to think of ourselves more as platforms and you've already kind of highlighted this and you know at the end of the day we we have to um you know think of ourselves as um providers of 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 services right so when in the rest of the world 
you're moving from transportation to transportation as a service, from software to software as a service, from, um, gosh, I mean, now it's like tires as a service, engines as a service, right? Well, why isn't it education as a service, right? That's really how we need to think about it. Um, and uh, when you think about that business model of like education as a service with, you know, subscriptions and tiers and, um, you know, and, and you know, third-party sales and, you know, all that kind of stuff, it's, it's radically different. And the obstacles to implementation are not technological. We've got the technology. The obstacle to innovation is organizational, right? We have within every university, these different groups. We have our alumni group. We have our marketing group. We have our um, uh, program offices. We have our executive education uh, group. You know, maybe we have our, our media arm, which is responsible for the, you know, business review or whatever it is. And those silos uh, have to be disrupted. You know, you have to kind of rip them up <laughs> and reorg them. And this is what companies like Autodesk had to do when they moved from like on-prem to, you know, to, to SaaS. Um, and I mean, it was painful, super painful and, and super difficult. And, and so the folks that are going to be able to lead these transformations are going to have to be the folks that have really, really strong political skills really strong organizational skills. And, and if, if for some reason the, the incumbent leading institutions don't have that kind of leadership, then, you know, hey, new startups can come along and, and, and disrupt. Um, and we're starting to see that. I mean, we've got the startups like Coursera that are just piggybacking on university reputation. But then we've got entirely new forms of delivery, whether it's like Amazon and Google offering, you know, technical training. Or, you know, uh, independent startups that are offering non-certified, um, you know, degree programs and educational uh, content. So, so universities have to figure it out. We've got, because of our history, we've got uh, a big cushion, right? It's not like taxi industry, wake up one day, Uber's, you know, taken over. We've got uh, a lot of leeway and we've bought ourselves a lot of time. But if we don't use that time to to change, then um, we I could see a world where you know there are a lot fewer universities. This has been a fantastic conversation, Gregory. Is there anything that I forget to ask? I, I forgot to ask. <laughs> well, look, education will only survive as long as people are curious, and so I think the biggest threat to um, our uh, kind of continuous improvement of ourselves is is technology so technology has a huge um offers us a huge opportunity but it's also a, a major threat to our capacity to learn right um you know herb simon said as information grows attention shrinks and so if we don't take charge of our own attentional resources and this is a deeply philosophical question which i dig into a number of our podcasts if you don't take charge of your attentional resources, then you will become parasitized by the agenda of others, right? And you will simply be uh, whipsawed around by, you know, all of the different uh, folks that are vying for your attention. Um, and ultimately, it's up to us as individuals to do that because, um, you know, no one's going to make money selling a, you know, taking charge of our attention for our own benefit. So. So we have a lot of responsibility uh, 
as individuals to to manage our attention, to manage our educational journeys, and um, and uh, and so you know, part of my podcast is really all about uh, encouraging people to to do that, to to be responsible citizens and uh, be responsible to yourself and pursue the virtues that Aristotle talked about, you know, twenty four hundred years ago. Well, Gregory, thank you so much. This has been a fantastic podcast. And don't forget to listen to Unsilent, the podcast of Gregory. <laughs> this, will be, uh, this is also probably a much better podcast than this that you are listening. And thank you so much again. And thank, thank you for being with us with the study. Thank you. Hope to see you in Barcelona soon. <laughs> see you in Barcelona. <laughs> if you still want to learn more, remember you can register on our platform, dobetter.asade.edu. That was all for today. Until next time, thank you. Do Better.